Our primary reading this morning is from James, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another. Brothers, so that you may not be judged, behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. The famous early 20th century novelist and journalist Upton Sinclair 
once gathered a group of clergy to a meeting hall and told them that he wanted to share with them some new material that one of his socialist colleagues had written. He, he wanted to get some feedback from these religious leaders to, to see how this rhetoric would be received. And so he read them a short piece and the religious leaders were outraged. This is absolutely un-American, one said. Another said that this is a a danger to the nation. They all agreed that this traitor should be reported to the authorities and deported from the country. Well, gentlemen, that may prove a little difficult, Sinclair said. I just read you James chapter 5. Y'all, we are in our final chapter of the epistle from James, our younger brother of Jesus, and he is really channeling his Old Testament prophet vibe harder than ever before. So let's jump into chapter 5, verse 1, and find out why James is such a hippie communist. (laughs) Come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and eat your flesh like fire. Now, when Jesus warned in Matthew 19.23 that it was hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, this was a warning on the spiritual state of wealth, that being rich tends to give an illusion of self-sufficiency, so that somehow we don't think we need mercy or grace because I have money and power instead. James, however, is not giving a warning on the spiritual danger of being rich, but rather a prophetic condemnation on the ethical violations committed by the rich. Let's look at verse 3. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one. He does not resist you. James here lists three problems. One, the rich have hoarded their wealth Instead of giving it back to the community, or at least investing in the community, they have stockpiled their resources to live a life of luxury, while others are just barely getting by. Two, they've cheated their employees of their wages. They have used deceptive business practices, even manipulating the law, in order to not pay people a living wage. And three, they have even resorted to using the legal system to destroy the livelihoods of others, perhaps even taking someone's life itself. For all this greed, all this injustice, James says the rich have only fattened their hearts for the day of slaughter. God's wrath. That is, God's justice against evil and evildoers is coming and nothing will save them. Not their money. Not their power. Not the legal system that they control. Nothing will save them from the justice of God. But this is the only section of James that is aimed outward 
like this. Everything James has said, encouraged, warned, corrected so far has all been to this point aimed inwardly towards different people within the church. And so it begs the question, why take this time to prophetically pronounce judgment on people who are never even going to read or hear your letter? Why come down so hard on these rich people? Because there are people in James's church that want to literally kill those rich people. By the 50s AD, when James is written, the revolutionary zealot movement dedicated to overthrowing the Romans and their collaborators is picking up steam. And as Judea suffers from another round of regional famine, many people are turning to these extremist groups as their best option. How can we tell that James is concerned about the zealot groups, even within the text? Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Again, James is repeating a teaching of Jesus here, and obviously James wants Christians to be known by their simple honesty, but there's something else happening here. James quotes Jesus in forbidding oaths because you know who's been asking for oaths? The zealots. James is saying not to give your loyalty to any of these kinds of groups. Why? Because James sees the bloodshed coming. He sees the violence coming. He sees the disastrous war on the horizon. In fact, 20 years earlier, Jesus himself warned about this tragic outcome coming upon the Jewish people. And so when James is condemning the rich, what he's actually doing is trying to stop the drift of political extremism within his own churches by first acknowledging the extent of the injustice that has been incurring around them. Political extremism in the United States has been well documented in the last decade. It's mostly far-right extremism, but left-wing extremism has also increased significantly as well. It has been suggested that, in part, this is connected to the rapid decline of church participation. You see, recently, high levels of church participation created a moderating equilibrium to American politics. It kept people from going too far left or too far right. After all, most people desire a sense of meaning and purpose, and most people will naturally want to make sense of the rapid, confusing, and sometimes threatening changes occurring within a nation. The church naturally served that civic function. But what happens when people stop going to church? The church attendance may change, but our human anxieties don't. And when you become convinced that the economy no longer works for the average person, or that climate change is only going to make your life harder, 
or that the justice system systematically will not treat people fairly, then you have a crisis in search of a solution. But like Upton Sinclair's room full of oblivious pastors who didn't even know the content of James 5, much less the values contained within it, If the church does not acknowledge that a crisis is real, if the church gaslights my sense that there is a crisis happening, then I am going to turn to some group that will believe me. And this will only fuel people leaving the church. I will turn to some political ideology, some political faction that will at least acknowledge the anxiety that I am feeling and will tell me, yes, these problems are real. These are in horrible injustices and we have the solution. And even if they misidentify the actual problems or they have a scapegoat for the problems, or even if they correctly identify the injustice but require me to act in a way that is counter to the way of Jesus, that will still give me a sense of purpose in a confusing culture. And we in the church can complain about it all we want. We can blame hysteria or brainwashing But if the church abdicates prophetic truth-telling, when a nation is in crisis, there will be always other groups to step into the void. But James will not allow this to happen. He's not going to shy away from the issues out of a fear of being labeled too political. He names the crisis He names the injustice, but the implied subtext is don't join the zealots. Instead, verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Ideological groups, extremist groups, even political parties love to capitalize on heightened states of fear and anxiety. Be very scared. Be scared of this crisis. Be scared of this group of people and do what we say. We will save you is the offer. But James's call to patience is not a call to an action, but to first center ourselves on the sovereignty of the Lord. God has history in God's hand. God sees your suffering and the suffering of people you don't even see. And God has ultimate justice. Before you do anything else, says James, You need to establish in your heart this reality about the sovereignty of God. Because if I don't, the extremists can divide us. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
One of the most effective tools of the enemy, whether that enemy is an oppressor or Satan himself, is not to confront the opponent head on, but to try to divide them. An oppressor is better off not trying to take on all the oppressed at once, but getting the oppressed to fight amongst themselves. Satan is more than content not to bother with trying to destroy the whole church, but trying to get the church so divided that it can't resist injustice and hatred. James's communities, as they suffer under famine, as they consider extremism and violence as an option, there is a real possibility here that they will tear themselves apart. And if that happens, not only will the oppressive rich certainly win, but Satan will win too. But the real judge, Jesus Christ, not ourselves, is standing at the door. So if patience in the face of suffering and injustice doesn't mean passivity for James, what does it mean? Let's go to verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So how do we know? that patience doesn't mean passivity because of the two models that James gives us, the prophets and Job. The prophets spoke truth to power, even often at their own persecution. And Job, when he suffered, argued with both his toxic religious friends and with God. Neither were passive both acted to align themselves with the purpose of the Lord. And what animated, what sustained that sense of purpose? God's sovereignty and God's goodness. The prophets believed that God was powerful enough to overcome injustice and Job believed that God was compassionate enough to redeem suffering. But we are not meant to be solo prophets. And we are not meant to have a toxic spiritual community like Job did. As James wraps up this epistle, he's going to create a picture of what a healthy church looks like as it navigates a nation in crisis. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Y'all, Christian worship is not Christian worship if there is not prayer and praise. You don't even need a sermon. Some of you are like, well, that's great news. (laughs) You don't even need the sacraments. But you do need prayer and praise. Those two things are the foundation of worship. And if they are the foundation of worship then it stands the reason that they are the foundation for our spirits. As simple as it may sound, James says the best way to orient my life on good days and bad days, in my successes and suffering, is to pray and to praise. But remember, this is not a solo spiritual journey. Just me and my buddy boyfriend Jesus is an American construct, okay? 
James understands the Christian life as a communal life. Let's go to verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, this passage can be confusing for a lot of us. I know that many of you have heard a a distorted theology that comes from misapplying these verses. Oh, you didn't get the healing you prayed for? (laughs) Well, I guess you didn't have enough faith. So if this is what you've heard before in a church, I'm sorry. It was wrong, and I'm sorry. This is simply not what James is getting at. But not only is this not what James is teaching at all, James is also not teaching that prayer, confession, and healing are transactional. It's not if you do X and Y, then Z will happen, because Z doesn't always happen, right? Rather, it's a faithful church will do X and Y, and Z will also happen. A church will have people praying for one another. It will be confessing their sins to one another. And as a result, there will be spiritual, psychological, and yes, physical healing. But it's not a rigid machine. It's a dynamic culture. And we are all invited to take part together. Look at verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Y'all, I used to think that when James said that the prayer of a righteous person has great power, I was like, oh man, Uh, yeah, I I shouldn't even bother. (laughs) It also meant that no matter how wayward I got, this is in my 20s, like when I was deconstructing, I I always still kept actually some really couple conservative, pious, religious Christian friends around just in case I really got in a bind, right? Like I wasn't gonna call my liberal, hard-drinking, swearing friends, like they had no power, right? But if I was in trouble, I needed that righteous person to put in the good word for the Lord. You ever done this? Okay, it's not just me. But in the context of James 5, James isn't saying that in order for your prayers to work, you need to be some super Christian, or that I need to strive to be righteous through my own power, but rather I am being made righteous through God's power. God takes normal, sinful people messed up people, anxious people like you and me, and God turns them into people like Elijah. Elijah had powerful prayers, not because Elijah was was perfect or moral or unproblematic. No, Elijah had powerful prayers because he aligned himself with the purpose of God. James understands that the whole church community has access to this. A church that prays 
and praises and confesses and anoints and heals. These are gifts for the whole church to exercise. These are for you to exercise. And even if you don't, even if you do the opposite, the grace, the grace of the gospel is there waiting for us. Verse 19, my brothers, if any one among you wanders from the truth and brings someone back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now again, just like the lines about prayer, some of you are maybe instantly triggered by this. Like this is the verse that got spoken over you when you started to think that maybe dinosaur bones weren't actually buried in the earth by Satan as a trick for people. Like you, got, you wandered from the truth, right? And then they had to bring you back. But remember, James doesn't care about your doctrine so much as he does about your actions. In first century Judea, wandering from the truth would not have been questioning the inerrancy of Scripture. Wandering from the truth would have been joining the Zealots or the Romans or some faction that was promising salvation apart from Jesus. And yet, James says that even if someone in church begins to place their trust in counterfeit gospels, the worldly ideologies with all their false promises, the grace of the gospel is still waiting for them. And to the extent that your compassion, your investment, your extension of grace and mercy to them one day helps bring them back to the way of Jesus, their soul will be saved. The Greek word here is soze, and it also means restored. It means preserved from the dead end ideologies that offered a false spiritual or earthly salvation. How does James make a promise this strong? This is because there is only one truly good news. In verse 6 today, when James wrote of the rich elites, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one, he does not resist you. James is referring to the poor and marginalized, but the grammatical structure here is oddly singular. The Greek here literally says there was a singular righteous one. And this one man did not resist. And even though he was righteous and did not resist, he was condemned by the legal system and executed. Friends, the righteous one, as we heard in our first reading in Isaiah today, was actually a prophetic reference to the coming of the Messiah, for the savior of the world. You see, the elites of Judea, the ones with the money and the political power, the ones who could manipulate the law, both Roman and Jewish, they couldn't agree on much except that Jesus and the kingdom of God that he was proclaiming was a threat to both factions. Such a threat that he needed to die. They condemned and murdered Jesus the righteous one. And yet, because he was truly the righteous one, Jesus returned to life, 
permanently overcame death and opened up salvation from both the despair of death and the systems that take it. Jesus announced this good news to everyone, accessible by anyone who would embrace it. This is the same good news that James, the skeptical little brother of Jesus, came to embrace. And this is the same good news that James, a decade later, would give his life for. May we as followers of Jesus, may we as a church, faithfully live out this same gospel today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, let's go to God in prayer and confession. Would you pray with me? I'm going to start you off with a theological question because I know those are your favorite. The passage in James says that Elijah's prayers are righteousness, but wasn't Elijah the same guy who once prayed that God would kill him under a broom tree? Yeah. So this is, this is the great part about Elijah. And I love the story of Elijah because it's not even like, you're like, oh, well, maybe he was like a regular guy and then God made him a super prophet and now we're like, he's really holy. But even as Elijah is being a prophet, he's not even getting all his prayers answered and he's having major struggles. And so this gives me such great comfort that like, that, that like I can, my prayers can be considered righteous and I can even fall backwards. I can even make mistakes. And that also maybe not all my prayers will be answered uh, in the way that I've asked them because Elijah certainly doesn't get his prayers answered in the way that he wants, which is for his own good. Yes. All right. What do we as Christian, what do we do as Christians when the zealots are speaking from within the church often even in positions of leadership and authority. Okay, so those are two different ones. So like sometimes you're going to be in a church, right? And that there, there's, this is always going to be a thing. It's going to be even be a thing on Parkside, right? Like, because we can go far left, we can go far right, right? And so if there's people within the church, right, relationship is going to give you access to have those conversations. Um, and so if it's within the church, you can have those convos. Hopefully, if you have community groups, things like that, that's going to create the, I mean, like Sam, I want to promote your group right now. Like Sam is literally doing a current events and theology community group. And so like you can have some really honest, open conversations and you all have been tackling some big stuff. Um, that's the place to do it. Now, if you're in a community where you feel like the leadership is kind of moving into political extremism, right? Like they're aligning them. Not that like you disagree with their politics. We all are going to disagree on some politics, but that they're actually aligning themselves with factions, like, like, like groups outside of Jesus Christ, right? We're using the tools that are anti-Jesus Christ. That's harder, right? Because they have power. But if you know someone who's in that situation or you're, you have some sort of relationship there, again, you can still challenge that leadership to say, is this in line with the way of Jesus? And odds are, right, sad thing is if they're leadership, they're probably not going to listen to you. Um, and if, so you might just have to leave the church. But that is a, that is a challenge. And I've, I've talked to a lot of people that had that experience where their leadership began aligning themselves with political factions and ideologies. They had the conversation. They were rejected. And they said, okay, my faithful option is actually to depart from this community. All right, last one. 
Can we draw parallels with the defrauded harvest workers of James 5, with today's migrant workers, sweatshop workers, and creators of much of the items we purchase? How do we take action and own our part of partaking in these injustices? Yeah, this is really hard, right? Because the global economy makes it really hard to figure out like where my stuff's even coming from. So there is an, I think that we, the starting point is just to begin to try to have an awareness of saying like, where does the stuff I, can, I eat, consume, where come from, and to what extent do I have as a person uh, of means, and you know your own means, to make changes in my personal consumption habits that are in line with my ethical values. So beginning having that conversation. But also, I think there's, there's again, power in the community, in our denomination, Nations even. One story I'll just re- say really quickly. Um, my denomination years ago actually boycotted Taco Bell. And you're like, what? You Taco Bell? Like, that's a, I mean, I don't really like their food, but like, why boycott them? Well, it turns out Taco Bell was actually exploiting migrant workers repeatedly, like just like year after year and like was getting caught doing it. And so our denomination joined with a number of other denominations to say like, look, we're just not going to like use your stuff for catering. We're not going to, you know, we're just not going to give you any support whatsoever. And actually over about like five years, Taco Bell finally was like, okay, yeah, we'll stop exploiting our workers, we'll stop defrauding them, and we'll just pay them a normal wage like anybody else. And so it actually worked, and collectively, we were able to make change. And that, that, that changed my heart, because I was really kind of skeptical of that at first and thought it was silly. And then I was like, no, actually, this was a small contribution that other people put together and then made a difference collectively. And I think that's a, a place of being creative. That was an excellent story, Colin. I did not know that. Talk about yeah. Yeah, fourth I, meal. I still don't eat no there. No fourth meal. Yeah, I still don't. I, I cannot eat there. But if y'all have any other questions, and thank y'all so much for texting in so many questions. Y'all are doing really great, and I know that Colin is very excited to answer the rest of these questions on Facebook Live tomorrow. So if you have any more questions you want to text in or you're watching this later, just go ahead and text them in so Colin can go through all of them on Facebook Live. Awesome. Thanks, Sam.